So welcome to Table Talk. Table Talk is produced twice monthly and in 2020 and for part of 2021, we've been looking at eschatology, the doctrine of the end times. And we've been doing that from a biblical and reformed viewpoint. In our last Table Talk podcast, we talked about the rapture. And if you've listened to that podcast, you'll remember that it threw up a problem. A problem that I promised I'd deal with in this edition. Let me remind you. When we talked about the rapture, we saw that not all Christian believers accept the dispensationalist stance. Some Christians, amillennialists like myself, believe that the Bible teaches that there is a day of a general resurrection. One single day when the Lord will return with his saints and for his saints to initiate the judgment day and to bring about the end of this world and the recreation of the new heaven and the new earth. But if the day of Christ's return is the very last day of life upon this earth, what then about those Bible passages that talk about one person being taken and another being left behind? Don't they suggest that after the second coming of Christ, some people will be left on this earth to face a further period of earthly time? So get your Bible out and turn it to Matthew chapter 24, verse 35 to 44. Read through the passage and then we'll talk about it. So we need to remind ourselves what Jesus is talking about in this passage. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35 to 44. He's talking about the trustworthy word versus this temporal world. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, this is the purpose and the context of this passage, so it's important to grasp it. Jesus is warning us about the unexpected nature of his return to this earth on the last day. There's a great comparison here. I wonder do you trust politicians? I'm not talking about any politician in particular, just politicians in general. I really am generalizing. I'm sure there must be a, an honest politician somewhere. But how trustworthy is a politician when he or she gives you a so-called cast-iron guarantee? Or when they make one of those special triple-lock promises? And who believes a single word they say? Generally, what happens, and I am generalising, is that when they say they're not going to do something, you'll find that they'll look for a way to do just that. Now, when God gives us a promise, it never fails. And he never, ever goes back on it. In First Kings chapter 8 and verse 56, it says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise. Not one word. Second Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20 reminds us that all the promises of God are yes in Christ 
to the glory of God through us. Jesus reminds us in our passage in Matthew that when he tells us something, when he gives us a promise, that promise is secure forever and ever. His word will never pass away. Compare that and contrast that with everything in this world. Some radio stations recently have been advertising a book, a new book by Bill Gates of Microsoft fame on climate change, setting out his plan and his blueprint to to save the world. Do you know, it's a pointless waste of trees. Imagine cutting down forests to produce a book like that. Because this world will not last forever. Everything in it will be gone. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words, the words of Christ will by no means pass away. Yes, there will be a sudden collapse. There will be a day we are promised again in God's word which never fails. A day when everything in this world will end, when everything will collapse under the terrible rate of God's judgment. Verse 37 in our passage, As the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. But look at how this is described in the passage. It's described as being like the days of Noah. Now, what were the days of Noah like? Well, think about it. Verse 38, look at your Bible. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. They're just doing ordinary everyday things, just like us, just doing everything that we would be doing. Jesus speaks of the days of Lot as well in Luke's Gospel chapter 17 and verse 28. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. People were just living their ordinary lives. The point is that they were living lives that were totally godless that had no place for God or for Christ. Normal lives going about their everyday business and yet godless lives. You see, Noah pleaded with the world's population to turn from their godlessness, to turn from their sin, but their preoccupation was with their own happy, as they thought it, self-fulfilled lives. They had no time to stop and consider that one day everything they held dear would be taken from them. They were too busy eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, too busy buying and selling and planting and building to worry about eternity until the flood came and took them away. And so, says Jesus, will be the coming of the Son of Man. It's a dangerous situation for this world. The godless life is, and it always was, about materialism, about being totally preoccupied with the perishable things of this life, the shiny gadgets and the trivial pleasures that wither and die and rot away with everything else that we have. We're sitting on a ticking time bomb, and we don't know when it will explode, and it will bring everything to an end. No one knows when that day, that hour will come, except our Heavenly Father, who has our times in His hands.
So we've done the comparison. The trustworthy word compared with this temporal world. So there's going to be a day when the Lord will come. And I want you to think about the tragic divisions that that day will bring. Look in your Bible again at verse 40. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Now here's our main subject. The common opinion held among evangelicals, at least here where I live in Northern Ireland, is that when Jesus comes again, the living saints will be taken to heaven and the living lost will be left here on this earth to face the awfulness of a period they call the Great Tribulation. And that fits nicely with the dispensationalist theology that underlies most of American evangelicalism. That was the product of J. Nelson Darby and C.I. Schofield and completely unheard of prior to the 19th century. Do you know, we know one of the easiest ways to spread ideas is through music. It was the ancient tactic of Arius the Heresiarch in the 3rd and 4th centuries AD. He spread his false beliefs about the Godhead using specially reworded catchy sea shanties. He taught them to the sailors down at the docks at Alexandria. And those mariners spread those false doctrines in those songs right throughout the world. He was a marketing genius of his day. Similarly, the dispensationalist rapture doctrine was spread in catchy songs. Back in the 1970s, Larry Norman sang this gem. Life was filled with guns and war, and all of us got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. A man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill. One disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. Too late now to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. It was a catchy tune. And it was sold in all the Christian bookshops and in the churches and in the coffee bars that were popular at that time. Covered by popular Christian bands like DC Talk became one of the most influential contemporary Christian music songs of that age. But is it true? What does Jesus mean when he talks about one being taken and one being left behind? Now there are two possible applications and both of those involve separation. Matthew Henry, the well-known and much-loved commentator, notes that this could well be applied to the effect of the gospel. It's really hard to know why in families or groups of close friends some are saved and others with all the same privileges with the same church background or lack of church background are left cold by the gospel while their peers are surrendering to the claims of Christ and accepting him as their saviour and lord. Matthew Henry writes here, we may apply it to the success of the gospel, especially at the first preaching of it. It divided the world. Some believed the things which were spoken and were taken to Christ. Others believed not and were left to perish in their unbelief. Those of the same age and place, capacity, employment and condition in the world, grinding in the same mill, 
those of the same family, those that were joined in the same bond of marriage, were one effectually called, the other passed by and left in the gall of bitterness. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 51 to 53, Jesus says, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So Matthew Henry, thinking that it may well apply first of all to the preaching of the gospel, the separation that occurs when the gospel is preached between even close family members. But a more contextually focused application might be the separation that will occur at the Lord's return, and we all agree on that. When Jesus returns, one shall be taken and one shall be left. But the real question is, left to what? And that's where we differ from the dispensationalists. Let's do some more context work on the passage. In Matthew chapter 24, the disciples were with Jesus at the temple. It's a truly magnificent building. Yet when his disciples come to show him the buildings of the temple, in verse 2 of the passage, Jesus said to him, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, how could such a thing be? To a Jew of that era, the end of the temple would mean the end of the world. So Jesus puts them right in the equivalent passage in Luke, Luke chapter 21 and verse 9. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. The destruction of the temple, the literal physical temple in Jerusalem, says Jesus, is not the end of the world, but it is being used here as being symbolic of the end of the world. So we have here in Matthew and in Luke three separate time frames. We have the time and day when Jesus is speaking to his disciples. That's obvious. He's speaking with his disciples on the Tuesday before his crucifixion. It's the final week and they are in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. It's a very historical point in history, a fixed point. The second time frame is the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, when that temple was physically destroyed. Jesus is describing this event, an event that would happen some 30 years afterwards. He's describing it in advance. He's warning his disciples about the horror of it. So in AD 66, the governor of Judea, a man called Florus, hated the Jews so much and really, really loved money so much that he raided that temple. He took away all the temple silver and the Jews were absolutely devastated about it. There was an uprising. Florus went into the city and massacred 3,600 people. The Jews revolted and that revolt resulted in the siege of Jerusalem and its defeat and bloody destruction under the Roman army in AD 70. On that day, the slaughter in Jerusalem was horrendous. 
going to read you some words from the secular historian Flavius Josephus, for he recorded the events. Josephus writes, But when the Romans went in numbers into the lanes of the city with their swords drawn, they slew those whom they overtook without mercy. They set fire to the houses whither the Jews had fled, and burned every soul in them. They ran every one through whom they met with, and obstructed the very lanes with their dead bodies, and made the whole city run down with blood, to such a degree indeed that the fire of many of the houses was quenched with these men's blood. And truly so it happened, that though the slayers left off at the evening, yet did the fire greatly prevail in the night, and as all was burning. Yet that terrible destruction is not the end. There is still a third time frame in this illustration that Jesus is using. And that time point is the very last day when Christ will return. Jesus is using the future destruction of the temple as an illustration of the awfulness of the last day for those who do not know Christ. We call this technique a teaching technique prophetic foreshortening. And Jesus is using the coming fall of the temple to warn in advance about the terrible destruction of the world on the last day, when God will pour out his dreadful judgment upon sin, burning up everything that is evil and wicked before establishing the new heavens and the new earth. When the Romans attacked Jerusalem, there was no escape. When the Romans attacked Jerusalem in AD 70, it was the end of the earthly life for those who were in the city. For those who were left there were mercilessly slaughtered. Being left in Jerusalem was not a prelude to a new dispensation. It was being left to destruction. And Jesus is likening that destruction to the last day. In fact, there's no reason whatsoever to assume that this passage or the passage in Luke endorses or supports a dispensationalist scheme of eschatology. When Jesus returns on the last day, it will be sudden destruction upon those who are Christ's rejectors, like the men of Noah's day, like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of Lot, when sudden unexpected judgment falls, no one is left behind on the earth. They are left to God's terrible wrath upon sin. The real lesson from this passage is found in the repeated words of Jesus. Verse 36, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Verse 42, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Verse 44, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The real lesson of one being taken and one being left behind is not about the tribulation 
or the gospel of the kingdom or the reign of the Antichrist or the seven years of the kingdom saints. The real lesson is that Jesus will return when we least expect it and we must be ready for that momentous event. <laughs>